Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to the podcast. This is Emily Mottram and today we have Mike Baines back on. We love to have Mike on. He's an expert in the building science field. So having him on the podcast is always a pleasure. This past week they met and talked about air barriers at BS and Beer in Liberty. And so I thought it would be an opportune time to start talking about air barriers and what that means in high performance construction. So welcome back, Mike. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Emily. It's always always a pleasure. Yeah, and so um, unfortunately, it didn't work out for me to make it to this particular uh, event, but um, I'm sure that you'll lead us through some of the discussion that you have. We can talk about different types of air barriers. It was actually interesting for me today. I have another contractor who uh, is really just starting to get into building science and building better buildings and asking all the right questions, which I appreciate. And he said, you know, my insulation contractor says, uh, I don't need an air barrier or with Roxel. And I said, you need an air barrier with Roxel. <laughs> so. yes, always, always need one, at least one air barrier in your assembly. Yeah, I, I, I can pretty clearly remember not, not too many years ago, you know, 15 or 15 years ago, maybe I, I was fuzzy on air barriers and vapor barriers. That seems to be the biggest, biggest, uh, uh, point of confusion, but of course, so in any building we want, there, there, there are four critical control layers. The most important thing is to keep up the rain. So for that, we need cladding and, and even more important than what the cladding is, is we need a good weather resistant barrier or water resistant barrier, the WRB. Uh, the next most important is to keep out uh, air. You know, it doesn't do you any good to have a lot of insulation if the air can flow right through it. Um, we don't need to worry about water vapor control, then we need to worry about so, so the only thing more important than the air flowing through your building assemblies is keeping the rain out. So it's pretty important to, to, to have at least one good airtight layer. Um, yeah, and I, I, where the airtight layer is in the assembly tends to be a point of discussion among building nerds. Um, I, know I think a lot of us started uh, Started with you know Joe Stebrick back in the early, you know, probably the 90s or early 2000s was recommending the airtight drywall approach. This was when air barriers were still new to everybody in the field, um, and so making the dry you know drywall itself is relatively airtight. In fact, the drywall airtightness is the standard for airtightness. Um, that's that's what they use to determine what, what what is an airtight, what meets airtight standards and what doesn't. Um, but just there's a lot of problems with trying to make drywall actually airtight. It's just it's not as simple as it could be. Where where do you put the airtight layer typically? Well, I think it really depends, and that actually brings up a really good uh, question. Two weeks ago at the Passive House conference, uh, uh, Reggie and Jespa and I were talking about doing renovations, and Heather asked, where is the airtight layer when you're doing a double stud wall construction and you're building your interior in a renovation? So you're essentially building a second wall on the interior and it said well if you're not taking the siding off then uh it's maybe not a continuous air barrier and um but that we do like to in double stud wall assemblies put it on the outside surface of the interior wall so that we can run all of our plumbing and electrical and everything else 
inside the air barrier so we don't have a lot of holes poked through it. Um, but it is significantly easier to put it on the outside, on the outside control layer. And as long as the insulation and everything is in continuous contact, you can make us, you know, you can make a system like that work. Um, maybe it's a little bit easier for, for most uh, general contractors to jump to that point as we move up with code air tightness is, you know, what they commonly think of as the Tyvek layer can be um, a bunch of other better water resistive barriers that have, you know, vapor open in one direction, that, but could be a complete air barrier that's, you know, flipped up over the top of your wall assembly and that goes across the ceiling of your, uh, so <laughs> You know, without visuals, I'm an architect, so without visuals, it's really hard to, like, I'm talking with my hands, not that you can see that on the podcast, but Mike can see me talking with my hands. Yes, it's the shape of a house. Yeah. Well, well, I think we, we maybe, uh, one bit of feedback I got from the BS and beer, or, and one, we, we did miss you, but I don't know if we had room to squeeze in one more person, so I think it's okay, but um, uh, uh, somebody suggested that we, uh, start off with a little with with a good solid bit of theory i mean i think i think those of us in the field or um at least you and i like to jump to the details and for and for the people who are basically we jump right in at, at bs and beer to the details and somebody said so why do we want an airtight layer so maybe we should actually back up a bit yeah no actually that's a great idea we should totally back up it's it's really hard when you're talking one one building science nerd to another to remember that um not everybody that's listening understands the depth of the details that we're talking about so why would we want to do it so why would we want to do an airtight layer mike or, or or as several clients have asked me like like i don't want an airtight house i'll suffocate no 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 matter how tight you get your you get your house, you won't suffocate. There's plenty of air in the house, and there is mechanical ventilation. But, but essentially, up to in a typical house, um, up to half of the energy loss is through air leakage. You know, a lot of it is through the thermal insulation layer, but up to half of the energy loss is 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 by air leaks. Um, so there's a cost to that and a comfort component, and then um, the air that's being lost, especially in a heating climate. I guess in a, in a cooling climate as well, because you're, you're bringing in moisture. Anyway, air moving through an assembly um, deposits moisture along the way. So as the air moves from hot to cold, it deposits moisture. And over a longer period of time, it will result in moisture damage. You know, it'll, 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 it'll condense enough moisture out to feed mold or fungus growth. Um, and then the air leaking in, you also, it's a stock control that's coming in any nook and cranny. So it could be clean air. It could be coming through, you know, fiberglass with mouse droppings or who knows where it's coming in. So the yeah, Jostebrick approach is, is build tight, ventilate right. So that's after seeing a lot of houses, you know, the experimental houses in the 70s and 80s that were all super cool with all their active solar systems uh, and really poor thermal envelopes, like part of a good building envelope in today's building science world is build it relatively airtight, relative is a term we can talk about, but that you uh, that you want to control your air leakage. You want to, the, the building doesn't need to breathe, occupants need to breathe, the, the wall assemblies need to dry, classic uh, science uh, truism. Um, and so one of those control layers 
that we want is to, uh, is to all the way around the house. We want to be able to draw on a building section a continuous. You need need a continuous surface all the way around the building. Every surface needs to be tits on. I teach that in all all of the classes that I teach. Uh, we start first. The question is, you know, does the house need to breathe? And almost everybody raises their hand and says yes. And I say no. <laughs> you know, the the people in it need to breathe. And and I even said that um, multiple times this past weekend at the expo to people who came up and they're like, well, if you're going to build a, a really tight house, I mean, where does the where does the fresh air come to? Because um, I don't remember if there was another track during the expo that people could go to, but they started to be concerned about, um, you know, what's in the toxins of the furniture that I'm bringing into the house and what's in the, you know, what's in the sheetrock and the, and the drywall and the plywood and what is this formaldehyde thing? And, you know, all of a sudden people VOCs and they started to get really concerned about it. And I said, no, we're, we're providing fresh air into the houses. We're not just, you know, sealing boxes. So I think that there is some um, misconception that we're building tight houses, but we're not ventilating them. And uh, we tried that in what was the seventies or so. And we had a lot of sick building syndrome because we didn't realize that we were building these tighter boxes and then trapping contaminants and, and moisture really being one of the worst ones. Uh, because then you have mold growth and then you have a lot of health issues and people don't necessarily uh, think that when they just have a cold after cold after cold that it could be something that's being provided by their house as opposed to you know just the you know workplace environment or something like your building itself could be making you you sick and so we we have moved on from that and said we need mechanical ventilation to to bring direct fresh air in from the right locations. And um, I also ask people how many people have been in their attic and I don't get a lot of hand raises on that one. Um, but I think I've been in enough attics for uh, everybody else who's in the crowd <laughs> over time. And I have seen some really disgusting things and you think that's, that is the, that's the leakiest place in the house. And I want to seal that off. I want to air seal that. I don't want fiberglass fibers, let alone fiberglass fibers with mouse droppings or squirrel droppings or bat droppings or <laughs> any number of things. Um, more than more people have been in their basements. And, you know, have you been in your wet, dirty basement? Well, the air's coming from there. Or you make people feel better when you go to an existing house. And I say, the cobwebs in your house are not a sign that you're not a good cleaner. The cobwebs are a sign that you have air infiltration in your house. That's where the cobwebs are. <laughs> yes. So. Yeah, no, people always seem very interested in that, that fact, but it seems to it seems to click with a lot of people. Yeah, where there's a cobweb, there's there, there, there's an air leak. It, 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 and there's a comfort component too. Like, like, like we, we've all been in old houses where the top floor in, in the winter, the top floor is way hotter than the lower floors. People say uh, it's because heat rises, and that's not really true. Heat doesn't rise. Warm air is more buoyant than cooler air. But what's really happening is there's a stack effect, which is which is a pressure differential between lower on the house and higher on the house. And so with most houses, air is leaking in down low, usually through the rim joist area, you know, the, the, the joint between the foundation and the floor framing. Just that's a that's a classic place for air leaks, or around a bulkhead door, or other places low on the house, and it's exiting. 
know, through the through the roof. You know, there's a there's an open attic. It's sinking through, you know, can lights in a flat ceiling, or it's an old house with a plaster roof. You know, just basically air is coming in down low and exiting up high. And so people who haven't been in a newer high performance home don't realize that there's much less temperature stratification between floors in a high performance home. And here's the part where I'm going to say something not nice about windows because I like to say not nice things about windows. But um, my favorite thing is uh, the someone will want to do a whole window replacement. And I always want to say and remind them that if you save a bunch of money on your window replacement, it's not because windows today are that much better than they were 25 years ago. I mean, sure, the triple pane windows add a layer of thermal comfort and, you know, 0.12 is better than 0.3, which is current code minimum and much better than maybe those, uh, you know, 0.5 windows that you have from before. But the difference between 0.5 and 0.12 isn't that significant. So when you're talking the difference between, uh, you know, an R10 maybe and an R40 wall. So, um, but what I wanted to say about windows in relation to the air barrier and air movement, and Ken talked about this when he was on and talking about tapes and everything is, if you have a significant improvement with window replacements, it's generally because they air sealed the windows when they put them in. So we used to just sort of stuff fiberglass beside them for, for years. The old weight and chain windows just had huge channels next to them that just allowed air movement. And it was a comfort level as you sat next to the window and you felt like it was drafty. Well, the window assemblies are better. Every window manufacturer is getting better. They're, they're not quite as leaky as they used to be, but they're not that much better than, than they were. And so the major impact, if you really want to save money, is air sealing uh, all of these things, not necessarily replacing the windows. And so if you're seeing a 20% savings because you replaced your windows, it's, it's simply because the contractor that, input, that installed it today understands so much more about air barriers and air infiltrations in a, in a system when installing windows. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, my, my, my house was built in 1830. I still have the original double hung windows. Um, uh, uh, there, there aren't uh, weight pockets, but there's, um, but, but, but they have aluminum triple track storm windows on the outside. So they're, they're ugly. They're they they are they are somewhat drafty. Certainly not very high on the thermal performance list. But they are. I have a lot of things I need to do do to this house, and they're basically the last thing I'll do is change out the windows because they have the longest return on investment. Someday I will put in nice warm triple glaze tilt turn windows of you know some sort of nice window, but it'll be long after I finished air sealing. Uh, insulating, worrying about vapor control, worrying about a damp basement, worrying about mechanical systems, worrying about fuel sources, uh, getting mini split heat pumps, putting photovoltaics on the roof. Then I'll come back and worry about changing out the windows. And that's that's basically when it makes sense to change out a window. Yeah. And I mean, if we're talking, uh, you know, a high performance new build, then obviously do the best that you can by the windows that you can install. But if we're talking renovations, it is always the last thing that we recommend. And air sealing and air barriers are the first thing that we recommend because they usually are the low hanging fruit. So people who ask me, you know, occasionally they'd be like, well, what are a couple of low hanging fruit things? And it's always air sealing. You save so much money and 
you spend very little on, you know, kind of making those things right. Now, when you're talking new construction and air barriers and getting them in the right place and um, maybe a contractor that hasn't done it, you're going to spend a little bit more in labor until they get into a rhythm of, you know, how do these air barriers get installed um, across the way. But in the grand scheme of things, uh, a caulking gun and, you know, some some gaskets and knowing where the air leaks into uh, the space or, um, you know, we, you just talked a few minutes ago about the, um, the band joist where it connects the floor foundation to the foundation of the house. And um, that's notoriously one of the leakiest places. And a couple of weeks ago when Ken was on, he was like, well, our Fen trim tape sticks to everything. It sticks to concrete foundations. It sticks to, you know, the wood and, here's this tape, which pretty much everybody can understand the concept of tape that you can wrap around the structure. And now you've gotten rid of one of the leakiest places in your whole building envelope in something that's pretty simple to comprehend. Yeah, you know, um, I, 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 absolutely. Sega Fentrum tape, tape is just, it's amazingly sticky. Um, I, I recommend it all, all the time, time on Green Building Advisor. Just it's one of the few tapes that will stick reliably to concrete. Um, Proclima Salido XO is, is a similar tape, but it's really those two are the only tapes I know of. Otherwise, you're resorting to some sort of uh, caulking or sealant or something like that. And, and there are some, some good ones, but it's easy to visually inspect tape. It's easy to install. Anybody can do it. Correct. I mean, I mean like like you, I, um, I, I've, uh, I walked, because I design a lot of renovations, I walk through a lot of existing basements um, <laughs> with people. and. Even if I don't think I'm going to get the job or it's not a job for me, just I always make a point of checking out the rim joists. And it's almost always, if there's anything there, it's some, some fiberglass sort of smushed in and it's black because so much air has leaked through and it's not doing a thing. So I, I just, I always tell people you should get this sprayed one. I mean, as you know, I'm not super pro foam. I try to avoid it when I can, but it's just one of, it's one of the best uses of oil is to have somebody um, come in and just spray your rim joist area down onto the foundation with foam. It's an air seal and a thermal solution all in one shot. There are other ways to do it if you want to be even lower carbon, but that's a quick and easy sort of two birds of one stone uh, application. Yeah, and I think that we we were talking a little bit before we hopped on the podcast about HFO blown foam and some, just some some slightly better things that you can do. So if you're gonna do it, just try just a little bit harder to get something that's a little less bad for the environment. But you're right, um, in in Maine, we have a lot of rubble stone basements and that joint between um, the two and spray onto the rim joist, uh, there are some scenarios where that really is just the best solution to, to air seal those locations. But obviously I wanna point out first that you should control your water vapor problem first. So if you have a dirt basement, don't, don't spray foam your walls until you deal with the dirt floor. Yes, noted, I have to do that. <laughs> we, do, we, do, we don't wanna uh, seal, seal in the little lake that is your basement. Uh, <laughs> That will that will cause uh, all kinds of other other problems. But you're right. There there are some scenarios where it just makes sense. Yeah. So so at, at BS and Beer, Beer last week we we uh, talked about you know what what is a good level of air tightness. You know it's one of the things you know when you talk about insulation you talk about R value, which is resistance to heat flow. When we when you're talking about a water barrier, you're, does it leak or not? That's pretty straightforward. Um, when you're talking about air tightness. You know, we use a, um, 
there's a tool we use, the, the, the blower door, where we pressurize and depressurize the house, and we met to a, to a standard pressure, and then we measure how many times at that pressure does the air change over. So that's that's ACH 50 air changes per hour at 50 pascals, and that's an industry, pretty much an industry standard. It's still, contractors are still getting to know it, um, it seems, but that's, that's, that's sort of the standard measure. There are other ways to measure. You, um, you can look at, at um, at the air leakage per square foot of, of, of wall area or of, of envelope area, you can you can try to calculate the natural air changes per hour, um, but that's a hard one to calculate. So just ACH50 is the standard. Um, and in um, the building codes, like Maine's current building code, we're allowed seven air changes per hour. Uh, the newest building code, we're allowed three, three air changes per hour. An old house like mine, would be hard to even get a number on, but it's 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 certainly above ten air changes per hour. Um, but we're, when we start talking about high performance, you know, like, like the pretty good house is sort of a base level high performance house. You know, we're usually talking in the one to two ACH fifty range. Um, so that's one or two air changes per hour at this at this pressurized level, um, uh, which is in a typical house, you know. It's, maybe is equivalent to say uh, something like a four inch diameter hole over your entire house. If your whole house is performing at 0.6 ACH50, you have you know, almost no holes anywhere. So you have almost no air moving through your structure. And so because the structure is super insulated, it's actually more vulnerable to water damage. Um, poorly insulated houses, you know, all the heat goes right through the wall. And so moisture that might accumulate can dry out. So it's something that we have to be more careful with in high performance homes. If you have 12 inches of cellulose in a wall, it's easy for that to actually store quite a bit of moisture. So you really want to get that air leakage as low as you can to convert moisture from it. So you don't want to have a super insulated house, lets a lot of air pass through because it will build up moisture over time and cause problems. It may not happen the first year or two. It may take 10 years for these problems to show up and then you have an expensive problem that gives performance homes event. Yeah, we actually had that discussion too. Um, unfortunately, in Maine, builders don't have to be uh, licensed, which uh, I would love to see some policy change on that. Um, but there is some concern that when Maine does decide to adopt a higher building standard and, and um, they probably won't be able to jump from where we're currently at at 7 ACH 50 down to uh, the next round came at five and then it came to three. Um, we're probably going to have to jump from seven all the way to three and then start requiring blower door testing. And um, it's a little bit scary to, to see um, how people will try to achieve that and kind of not understand some of those things. Because as you're right, uh, building just a thicker wall, it doesn't necessarily, it adds other problems. And we talked about this a little bit in the pretty good house discussion this past weekend is that house is a system. So if you change one thing, that's going to have an effect on other things. And so, um, you know, if you switch out your cellulose insulation for Roxel insulation, then you, you have a difference where your air barrier really needs to be on the inside versus maybe on the outside. And, um, how all of that kind of works together. And it's a little bit, uh, we've talked to Naomi about this. I'm super excited that uh, Ken has a, you know, a newly opened training center is that I think we're going to have an influx of, of training, which would be really great to, to help people understand how we're going to get to that 
airtightness level that some of us have been doing for the last 10 years and improving. And, you know, I think we tried it every different way uh, <laughs> before we found one we, we liked. Uh, and even then, um, you know, building science is so exciting and they come up with new technologies. They have, um, I know our friend Bob Swinburne wants us to, to have AeroSeal come and talk about that as a concept. And uh, there's just constantly some new technology that might be the next wave of, of getting better buildings and more airtight buildings and how do we do that? And so I think we could definitely get into the technicals of, you know, where does the air barrier go? How does it go in each system? But um, I think the answer is we've been promoting this for a long time, but hire the right team <laughs> to help you, to help you kind of to work through that and think about it and, you know, call when something needs to be value engineered to some other product or some other detail. Um, I don't know if you have anything else that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think I think it's. Um, I, I definitely understand because I because I, I remember going through this transition of not knowing what an air barrier was or the difference to like, okay, well, I think I understand that it's important, but how the heck do I implement it? Like, how do I get the contract, or how do I draw something? That, you know, just it, it's the getting from not knowing anything about it to understanding that it's important, to, uh, then trying to figure out what to do, and then eventually you sort of incorporate it into your standard systems. Um, it's not that hard, but it needs to be, it's not something you can do effectively after the fact. It's, it's sort of a basic inherent part of the process. So you have to have a good you know, architecture designer to help you plan it up front or, or and, and you have to have steps planned all the way through. Um, it's actually, once you, once you get over that initial hurdle, it's actually kind of fun because it is, it's, it's a type of craftsmanship. You know, most, you know, builders aren't, you know, builders who are building nice homes aren't in it just for the money or the glory or whatever. There's not a lot of that. It's, it's just because they want to create something great and they want to you know, um, practice their craft. And so they can, I mean, you know, if a, if a trim joint is good because it stays closed or, you know, a framing is good because the house doesn't settle or sag. And with, air, with, that, with a lot of energy related stuff, it's just, there's not a lot of, uh, maybe not enough respect for it, but with air sealing, there's a specific way to measure. You put a door, a blower door in, and you keep taping and sealing until you hit the number you're looking for. There's a there's a right or wrong answer. Like you you can see the results of your attention to detail. So it's it, it's uh, I've had a lot of high performance builders I know and I've worked with, basically started as either cabinet makers or timber framers. Like they they, they started off wanting to exemplify the craft, and once you get good at those things, then it's like, well, what else is there? It's like, well actually getting really good at building science and air sealing and that stuff is, is, is actually an evolution of that. So it's, it's not, it's not something left with a low man on the totem pole. It's something that needs to be led from the top. Yeah, no, I think that you, you definitely hit on top of that is that it's a top down approach is that everybody on the team from the person at the top all the way through, through the person at the bottom has to be on board with that. And unfortunately we see, it seems that the insulation and air sealing contractors seem to be on the bottom end of the totem pole. And it's probably one of the, from a building nerd standpoint, it's probably one of the most critical, important things in the whole building envelope. It's not the pretty stuff for sure, but it's definitely the things that make you healthy and safe inside your home, that make you comfortable when you're sitting in the space, that save you money year after year. Um, the other thing I tend to say a lot to people is I can't guarantee anything except for the cost of energy is going to go up. Like 
it's just just gonna happen so if we can cut down on the amount of it that you need we can still save you money it'll cost you more year after year but it should cost you less than it would if we don't attempt to do any of these things now and, and just just one, one more thought um my, my friend uh, steve steve Demetric is, is a high performance builder passive bus builder in rhode island and my friend steve basic is a high performance architect in Reading, mass and they're um, they've done several projects together, and their approach is um, is basically to um, that it should be on the builder to, to do this. It's not something you, you shouldn't get mad at your electrician because they're not building airtight. You know, try to set things up so your electrician can do what they're used to doing. It's it's not on them to make your house airtight. It's it's it, so it's, so that also goes back to not trying to apply your tennis after the fact. It needs to be planned in and on in the contractor's responsibility to make sure that things are set up so the subcontractors can do what they're good at doing. I would say that we have to take that back yet another level, and that has to start in the design phase. So I was really impressed with the contractor I was meeting with today, who I was telling you is jump is jumping into this, is really getting into it, and he said is this information going to be part of your drawing set? Like, are you going to have chases where we're supposed to run ductwork and, you know, where the plumbing is going to go and be located so that we're not punching through air barriers or doing something like that? And I said, yes. The more information that I can plan out beforehand, the easier it should be for you than when you get to the field, the easier it should be for your subcontractors then to follow up after that and, and make it all work together. And um, I think the, it is often undervalued the design portion of it, you know, as you and I know as designers that that sometimes gets value engineered out of the structure and so you have great builders who are doing it anyway, which is, which is fantastic. Um, but I think that if more designers kind of play into that from the very beginning and, you know, maybe it's not as simple as saying, you know, we, <laughs> here's here's your building package and oh by the way here's the here's the package of things that you need for I, I mean it would be great if we said you know here's the package of air sealing materials that you need from uh from performance building supply or 475 or wherever you're buying it from like here's what you need yeah. <laughs> um but that, it, that we've thought through at least visually, like where's the dryer vent gonna go out if we have one? And um, maybe we need to think about condensing washers and dryers that don't have dryer vents. Or, you know, if you, we don't do a lot of gas ranges because obviously in high performance home that gets a little bit scary. But if you did have a range vent hood, where does that go? And if you have recessed lights in the ceiling, how do we do that without putting them through the air barrier? Because uh, like you said earlier, heat doesn't really rise, but everybody thinks heat rises. So if you imagine that every little recessed light in the ceiling is just a little chimney, so you've just got a whole bunch of little chimneys in your ceiling. And so we want to eliminate that. And so how do we raise the ceiling height enough that we can strap down and run electrical in that? And they, you know, with the advent of LEDs, it's been great because now you can fit what looks like a recessed can in a junction box and it fits in a significantly less amount of space and you don't have these six or eight inch cans that pop up through and then you worry a little bit like did I did I get the right one so the insulation won't catch on fire and is it sealed and it's a chimney and you know there there were so many other scary things 10 years ago that um now there's just new scary things but um <laughs> you know with the, with the led lights and they don't get as hot and they fit in smaller spaces and we have a lot easier ways to you know strap down a ceiling that isn't 
so costly. Yeah, well, it, 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 yeah, I think I think we are lucky in New England because builders are all used to strapping ceilings anyway. In the rest of the country, they don't strap ceilings. So the whole idea of strapping is is that foreign concept. Is, but um, here, we just have to say, well, you just run two layers of strapping, or use two by threes or two by fours instead of one by threes. So it's not that big a change, and all of a sudden you have a super easy airtight ceiling, and you can use yeah, the, the LED uh, lights are you know a little over an inch thick with a transformer. You just those in and you don't even have to puncture your air barrier. Right. I know. It's fantastic. So there are so many things that you can do to keep an airtight layer without, you know, getting getting into that. So um, is there anything else that we want to talk specifically about air tightness or air layers or anything that you went over at BSN Beer that was sort of a hot topic that you want to add on? Yeah, yeah, we only covered my first uh, my first page of notes from the but essentially, essentially, we get into a lot of um, a lot of specifics about how and where and things like that. I guess, I guess, I guess the, the only other thing maybe to point out is is the ventilation standard. So, like, um, that th that it's not that we're throwing darts at a wall to guess how much air we need to replace. So, that's if you're building a a, a leaky house, it's it's going to be leakier and leakier the colder it gets. Um, uh, but with a with a tight house, you, you want to. Um, there are relatively scientific approaches, and it's, it's called the ASHRAE standard, ASHRAE sixty two point two, the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, um, and so and, and they actually correspond reasonably well with the passive house standard and other standards. But basically, it, it usually rounds out to you want about. Um, one change of your air every three hours. And so then how you get there doesn't really matter as, as much for, for ASHRAE. It's just you want that much fresh air. So all the air in your house is getting changed over roughly every three hours, some more or less, depending on, on which standard you go by. But that's like, I think most people can, can imagine that's, that's, that still seems like a lot of air movement. So, you, so when you're in one of these airtight houses, like you don't, if you have a good ventilation system, you, when you walk into the house, the inside air is actually fresher than the outside air. It's filtered, it's uh, mechanically ventilated to all the rooms. You're getting fresh air pumped into the bedrooms. So you don't get CO2 spikes. It's uh, just, it's, it's actually a more comfortable house. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing is to, to talk about is the, the ventilation standards, you know, and the amount of air and they've sort of figured that out because they're super smart engineering people who figured out how much you need to, to have. And so that's like, you're right, we're not throwing darts. Um, but that we are very specific about what kind of air you need in certain areas. Like you said, we're supplying air to the bedroom because guess what? You're going to go in the bedroom. You're going to close the door for eight hours. And you're going to stay in there and you're going to respire moisture and you're going to produce CO2. So we we definitely want to think about those things and so when you're building an airtight building but going back to what you said before that which is it's actually cleaner and better because it's filtered so leaky houses are pulling it from every dirty location that you can think of plus whatever was outside and at whatever temperature it was outside so when it's negative 15 degrees outside the air is negative 15 degrees when it comes in um, a lot of mechanical ventilation that we're doing is going to exchange the heat and sometimes the moisture with the air so that you can keep a really consistent indoor air environment. But people are having more and more allergies. I don't know about you, but the ragweed was terrible this year. And so when you have a system that can then filter out some of those dust and particulates as it comes into the space, 
it can be a really healthy, comfortable environment for you during that season. You know, some people it's the spring, some people it's the summer, sometimes people it's the fall. For me, it's actually wintertime. I'm allergic to dust mites. I think that was too much time in people's attics. Uh, but having that that filtration system that really pulls those uh, particulates out of the air is is key for having a healthy environment and being comfortable like your, your spikes in co2 and it makes you sleepier and um i actually got a, a yoohoo air quality monitor i don't know if you've seen them and uh it, it was great i put it in um in the kitchen because we have an older house and we're working on renovating it and i wanted to see how much particulate matter was actually being introduced into our house from the wood stove that we had because i refused to turn the heat on until <laughs> like two days ago. Um, and so every once in a while, we'd make a fire just take the chill off. And I wanted to see how much particulate matter was getting into the air, because as I make it tighter and do that, I want to have a really controlled environment and, you know, high perform. We'll eventually swap out the older wood stove that we have as we make it tight and really seal it with, you know, a high performance wood stove. Um, but so I wanted to get this air quality monitor and we're actually doing pretty good. And I think this time of year, you know, we just, uh, we bought an old house and it's still kind of leaky. So <laughs> uh, we were too, too bad, but then I, uh, I put it in my office cause I wanted to check out what was going on in the office and just see if it was different, if, you know, there was too much moisture or if it was really leaky in my office and was guy getting dust particulate in there and uh turns out with me and both dogs in the office with the door closed the co2 was kind of high <laughs> so, so uh you know even even people who who know better um one it was kind of um, amazing to find out that maybe my uh house isn't quite as leaky as i think it is or at least not the office um but two is, you know, you, you should know better and you wonder why you hit three o'clock and you're feeling kind of tired and sleepy and you go, oh, well, the, the CO2 levels are a little high in here. Yeah. Oh. But it, and with the filtration, filtration too, like, um, it may not be clear, clear to everybody that, that you can actually kind of dial in, like, depending on your level of sensitivity, you know, most, most good ventilation systems, um, particularly balanced ventilation systems, will come with a standard filter and you can and it, which is measured on the MERV scale um, so, so, so you can do a relatively low MERV like a MERV 7 or something that will filter out some of the larger particles but it's really more about keeping the machinery clean rather than in your air quality um, it doesn't create a lot of um, resistance to airflow so, 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 it's, so it's good for energy use but if you're sensitive um, I'm lucky that I'm not but if you are you know, um, you, you can get filtration all the way up to and above uh, uh, HEPA levels. So you can get into like the MER 15 or 13, MER 15, there may, somewhere around there is like equivalent to HEPA level or surgical quality air. Like, like that's pretty amazing that you can get that in your own house. Yeah, and so if you have an issue, there are ways to treat it. And even if you don't have an issue, people seem to every year have, um, I don't know if more is blooming because, hey, let's talk about climate change and how uh, Maine is going to be like Virginia by 2050 if we don't do anything about it. But anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> um, but the, it's getting warmer, so maybe more things are blooming in different locations than they did before. And so I feel like there have been more people who are affected by allergies than maybe five years ago or 10 years ago. And so as we move towards high performance homes being the standard instead of 
of what some couple of people are doing. It's great to know that we've sort of thought through, like, let's not let all this leaky air come in and then let's control the air that we do have to, to make it because the health crisis, I mean, I like to talk about climate change and the health crisis. <laughs> so but the health crisis is important and we need to start thinking about proactive approaches to our health and the fact that we spend 90% of our time indoors. So. So that was the the point that you were looking speedily through your notes. So clearly we'll have to have you come back on, um, you know, like to digestible segments of <laughs> of podcasting because we could probably talk for, you know, all day if people wanted to just sit down and listen to us. And um, hopefully we'll have some future webinars where we'll be able to have people ask specific questions about what we're what we're going to do. Um, and, and how to get to some of these levels or guideposts for the pretty good house. But, uh, we always like to end with, uh, you don't know what you don't know. So was there anything that came up in the, uh, discussion the other night that you were kind of like, oh man, I really feel like I should have known that, uh, or, or that person should have known that, or, or why don't we all know that? <laughs> I think it was a rare, a rare one. I mean, I, I did a, I did a fair amount of talking and, uh, this is one of my, my specialties, so I don't think I learned a whole lot of new things. I did meet some nice new people, um, but I think it's just the, the, the um, uh, well, no. So I think I think I think I think a good one is, is a builder friend of mine who is there. He's a good builder. He uh, he's um, he builds small, energy efficient homes. He's he's basically you know in terms of the, the builders out there, I, I, I put them out there at the top. Um, but he had uh, some of this was new. To him, he, he had not been using a blower door test, and it, as a direct result of our conversation, uh, the next day he went and talked to the local college and was going to borrow their blower door test for his next build and learn how to use it from them, incorporate blower doors into his building from now on. Just it was a, uh, so I, I guess it's not, not that if he can do it, anyone can, but it's just, that's a good example of, of a builder who just, just drank the Kool-Aid and now understands that there is a tool to measure this important device and that is something that every builder can be doing. Blower doors aren't cheap, but as far as tools go, they're not super expensive either. And you can borrow, you can borrow some, borrow them or hire an energy rater or, or a home inspector, or there, there are various ways to get a blower door, you know, 1500 to $2,500 for a setup. Um, I've, I've, I've heard of libraries that, that rent them. I, I, I don't know. I, I haven't confirmed that. Oh, I don't know if anybody, I have one, so which seems kind of rare is that people are like, wait, you're an architect and you have a blower door. I'm like, yes, I do. Um, <laughs> but uh, I also really loved uh, back when the RO money was coming into the state back in the 2009s or so, um, the, the state was actually offsetting contractors buying blower doors and, and paying to have them test during construction. And I think that if we could get to a point where a contractor just had one as part of their toolkit of tools that they had and they ran it once or twice while they were working through, um, they would start to figure out where some of those air tightness levels are. And I mean, we talk about uh, certain contractors who are really pushing the envelope of high performance. Uh, you know, these passive house guys, uh, they don't own a uh, blower door they are friends with somebody who does own a blower door and comes out and tests them because they have um, they have levels that they have to meet and they need to address some of those issues pre sheetrock and uh, and everything. So um, I would love to see like plug to efficiency Maine. I saw you this weekend, Andy Meyer. Uh, start getting rebates for people to buy for for contractors to buy blower door tests in the state of Maine. Maybe that will help us to get to the next level of air changes per hour because. 
you're right. I think that our current code still says you can visually inspect the air barrier layer, which um, for us building science nerds is totally bogus. There's no way to visually inspect the air barrier layer. I mean, you can look and see how well you taped something, sure, but that is no, no way a comprehensive way of evaluating how energy efficient or not energy efficient, how airtight your building is. And so um, it would be awesome if there was some incentive for, for builders to have that and be able to use it on their jobs. And uh, anyone that wants to learn how to use a blower door test, I'll throw it out there. I will teach you. It is not rocket science. It's actually quite a lot of fun. Back when I was doing more energy consulting and less architecture, we used to race to see who could put their blower door up the fastest. I am old and not fast anymore, but but, uh, it's always fun to, to teach students how to set it up and how to run it and, you know, see them understand the concept behind it and it just clicks and you go, oh, all right, I get it. I can, I can tell where it's leaking. And, you know, even if you don't have an infrared camera walking around with your hand out and feeling air leaks is, uh, blower door testing is pretty fantastic. Uh, there's, there, there's, there's an old adage, you know, um, uh, that, that, that gets measured, gets improved. I think this is a good example. If we can agree that air tightness is important, there is a tool that we use to measure air tightness. It's not that hard to use. So if I just, I guess, one more plug, uh, anti-spray foam. Everybody thinks that spray foam automatically gives you a tight house. The tightest houses I've done are incredibly tight with no foam. You don't need, foam is an okay air, air tight layer, but it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily any means. Sure. It might be the easiest way to do it, but it's not necessarily the fastest or best way to do it and definitely not the cheapest and definitely not the best for the environment. So, well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate you coming back on. We obviously will have you on many, many, many more times to impart your building science expertise uh, to everybody who likes to tune in and listen. So I will add, as I always do, ways to get in contact with you if people want more information and, um, Mike really is the engine that drives the Pretty Good House, so definitely check out prettygoodhouse.org or prettygoodhouse.com. Right now the website is a whopping two to three weeks old, so uh, check that out. Just a baby. <laughs> Just a baby, and, uh, and give us the feedback that you want to hear on the podcast, and we'll talk about different Pretty Good House guideposts and everything else. So thanks for being on, and we appreciate having you.